Consider the following cases. You give birth to a baby that is missing its cerebrum and cerebellum. It'll probably die, but other babies could use its organs. Should you abort it to save the lives of other babies or give birth? Or another dilemma, there's a child drown drowning in a pool. Should you wade into the pool to save its life? And if so, should you also devote significant time and resources searching for children who are dying from starvation around the world and save them too? One last, you're the pilot of a trolley car. The brakes have gone out and it's careening toward a group of people. You can't stop it, but you can switch a track to where only one person's killed. Should you switch it? Uh, what happens if you're not the driver, but only a bystander who, who can push a large man onto the same track to stop the trolley? What do all of these questions have in common with each other? Well, one thing is that they're all examples used by noteworthy philosophers to motivate inquiry into bigger, bigger ethical questions. They're also fairly far-fetched kinds of cases. If they ever come up, they're pretty rare. And incidentally, philosophers don't really agree on about how to answer these questions. What accounts for this approach that philosophers take to dealing with ethical questions, uh, which seems to have the result that ethics as a philosophical discipline becomes irrelevant to life? Well, welcome to New Ideal. Uh, today, uh, this, this is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're going to discuss this topic how ethics can guide our lives, not just resolve dilemmas. My name is Ben Baer. Uh, I'm soon going to be joined uh, by uh, Greg Salmieri, who is a senior philosophy scholar at the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Greg, are you out there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Greg, as you know, I was, uh, like you, I was a philosophy professor uh, for about a decade uh, in higher education, and uh, I had to teach ethics courses, and I had to pick ethics textbooks that I would assign to my students, and indeed, when you, when you look through the textbooks that they sell, uh, and when you look through a lot of the academic literature uh, about ethics, these are, in fact, the kinds of, they're very often the kinds of questions that ethicists are concerned with. And I mean, I can understand, at least in part, why there's the focus on them. They, they're, they're, they're interesting cases, they're dramatic cases, uh, they, they have a kind of gee whiz factor that would be interesting to students who are into kind of sci-fi or fantasy or action movies, let's say. But there is this question of uh, how are they relevant to the kinds of questions that we really deal with in everyday life? Are they relevant to life? Um, I mean, do you have a view from your perspective as a philosophy professor, uh, how often these kinds of questions are dealt with by ethicists? Are they in fact representative of the type that they tend to focus on? You know, it's hard to tell because there's so much written and no one reads all of it. And I tend to stay away from the, the corners of the, the parts of the literature that are super focused on, on those questions. Uh, so I can think of a lot of things that de-emphasize them and, and whatever else I might disagree with about them. They're not so focused on uh, on these kinds of dilemmas, but the, these kind of dilemmas have a real influence. You could see even people who aren't interested in them reacting against them or reacting against the method of focusing on them. And they're certainly very prevalent in a lot of 
in the way a lot of people introduce ethics. And I think that uh, to, to students, and I think that's, um, that, uh, you know, a concern. Now, to, to be fair, because I think we, we want to be fair on this kind of question. I mean, I don't think I agree with you. These aren't the only questions that ethicists ever focus on, but it does. They do have a kind of prominence of place uh, that is is at least questionable in my mind. But there's another thing that I think philosophers would say in defense of their use of these examples, which is that uh, they're not, it's not that they think we're ever going to, it's not necessarily that they think we're ever going to be in a case where we have to decide about how, whether to switch the track on the trolley, but they think that these examples can be used as kind of thought experiments to isolate crucial issues and therefore to extract certain kind of ethical principles from these thought experiments. And the, the, the trolley uh, thought experiment is sometimes used to do that. Do you have thoughts on that approach that they that they take, uh, that using these as kind of intuition pumps is what they sometimes say? I don't think into, I mean, the, the issue of the methodology of intuition, intuition pumps is a big question. And uh, I don't think that way of conceiving of the roles of role of examples is uh, examples, whether they're unusual or uh, or more run-of-the-mill ones, is the right way to understand what examples do when they're used well. But I do think that some, um, you know, far-fetched or heightened or dramatic types of examples can be useful to bring out principles in some cases. And you know, uh, the original use of the trolley case by Philip Afoot, I don't think it's the best example for its purpose, but it's not. Um, it's not what's become of trolley problem literature subsequently. Uh, so I, I think you wanna think about what role is it playing in the argument here? If it's really to help isolate or clarify a particular principle or a particular issue by creating a situation in which that issue was salient as opposed to the others, um, then it should be used in a way that really does that. And you should be saying this case is unusual, but the reason why I'm breaking it up is because it relates to these kind of decisions you actually have to make. You're never going to be running a trolley in this situation, but um, the difference between um, committing something bad and letting that bad thing happen when you could have prevented it uh, does come up in these other cases. And here's why I think this example will help. That is, you need to be able to show, motivate the example by reference to life. And I worry that these kind of examples are used to motivate through their gee whiz factor. Uh, and that therefore detaches ethical decision-making from actual life. So notably the, the first example that I gave about the baby being born without the brain, that's the first and central example that's given in uh, the James Rachel's Elements of Moral Philosophy textbook, which is, which is one of the most used textbooks by ethics professors. And it's, it's not there as a kind of thought experiment to extract a principle, it's there to motivate we need to be able to answer this question. And now let's start delving into the elements of moral philosophy. Yeah, as opposed to, to like, should you have a kit, which is, a, you know, a question, you might think it's, it's a question you'll only face once or, you know, how many kids you consider having in your life, but, but having one really changes your life. So it's a big question. Uh, should you, or even like, you know, not that he's my favorite philosopher by any stretch, but even Sartre's old question about the, the kid who has to decide between, um, staying at home to care for his ailing mother and fighting in the French resistance. You might not have that decision, but you're gonna have a big decision about which course are you gonna take in your life? You know, Are you gonna uh, put career first or family first? These kinds of decisions are much more the decisions people make. And that's where I think we should start in, in motivating people to think about ethics. 
Yeah. And, and on that note, part of the reason that we're doing this podcast today is because I just uh, released an article on New Ideal that relates to this topic. And I wrote the article uh, because it, I was prompted by a blog post that I read last year. It was written by a non-objectivist philosopher named Michael Sigrist. It came up on the blog of the American Philosophical Association. Title of the blog post was, Why Aren't Ethicists More Ethical? Uh, and it's a long story why it's called that. But um, it, one of the things that he notices in this article is the same kind of pattern uh, about the types of examples that ethicists focus on that I was mentioning at the top of the show. Uh, he says, when you open up ethics textbooks, you'll find section headings on topics such as abortion, torture, charity, meat eating, prostitution, organ markets, climate change, poverty, gun control, procreation, reproductive rights, and so forth. And he, he also wonders if uh, many of these kind of uh, rare cases or cases that are maybe questions for public policy, but not questions about the course of your, your regular everyday life, are the reason why a lot of people see ethics, uh, especially academic ethics, as more or less irrelevant. And I should mention, since you brought up earlier the example of making the decision to have a child, this is one of the most interesting parts of this essay, because uh, he says, you know, the, if you look at the way most people, most academic ethicists think about their subject, uh, they might talk about these rare cases, you've already had the child or you're already pregnant and there's some complication and what are you going to do about it? But they don't actually get into the kinds of questions that you need to think about if you're going to actually decide to have a child in the first place. And he talks about how he and his wife had to make a decision about this. And he lists a whole bunch of questions that they went through uh, in order to make their decision. He says, did we want a family only because many of our friends were having children around the same time? Was it because our own parents were hoping for grandchildren? Was it because it simply felt like the right time to move on to the next phase of our life? Would it have mattered if it were for if, if, if it were for any of those reasons, or did it have to do because we thought it was good for us, for the child, for the world, et cetera. And he said, he talks about the big impact that having a child has on your life and how you think about yourself and your relationship to your spouse. And he says, these are deeply ethical questions. Um, and and I agreed with this article that, sorry, it's go ahead. It's not just you're bringing this up because having had a kid, I'm peer pressuring you into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, no, I, I agree. Those are serious issues, but I think some of the, and, and they're personal issues that you have to think about in the context of how you live your life. And there's a, a worry about saying, no, you should only be thinking about these personal decisions and not principles. But the, the real issue is, and, and I'm a little bit, what I don't like about this article is I don't think it thinks enough about the role of principles in ethical decision-making. For sure. But you need to think about moral principles with respect to how it impacts on decisions that you're going to make. And you need to be connecting those kinds of thinking. And I think having a kid is an excellent example of this kind of thing. But also, if you go back to the other issues that were listed, I mean, take, uh, take abortion. Um, abortion is not an unusual decision to have to make. I think if you have not decided whether you would get an abortion, if you're a woman, or whether you would want a woman that you were sleeping with to, to get an abortion, and you're having sex, you are grossly irresponsible. 
everybody should make the decision about whether or not to, obviously you revision it, revise, uh, revisit the decision in the situation if it comes to pass, but you're going around doing something that could result in a pregnancy. A pregnancy as a, a child has a major effect on your life and you should have a view on what would I do in this? And it, 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 it's an important part of taking responsibility for yourself to make that decision. And that's a really important ethical principle, right? Are you taking responsibility for what you do or do you just find yourself in situations and then suddenly you're, you're posed with dilemmas? So I think that's an important part of a moral perspective on the world. And if I was teaching abortion, which I've, I've not done, but if I was teaching it in an ethics class, I would set it up that way. And, um, and then we would think about, well, how do you decide what kind of principles are relevant to making this decision? And how do these principles factor in other areas of your life? And likewise, I think decisions about vegetarianism or something like that, you know, it changes the way you eat if you're, if you're a vegetarian. Uh, and it changes a lot about the way you live if you think meat eating is wrong. But any of the principles that would lead you to do it should also shape a lot else about your life. And likewise, if you think, if you're not a vegetarian, are you guiltily not when you think, oh, I'd be better if I was, but I'm not willing to make that commitment? Or do you think, no, there's something wrong with this view that you should be a vegetarian? Uh, other than like maybe uh, a particular person might be for health reasons or whatever that are distinctive to him. But the, the idea that there's some moral imperative or moral reason for us all to be vegetarians, do you think it's wrong as I do? And if you think it's wrong, then where else do those premises that lead to that come up in life? And, uh, and where, you know, and, and, and are you rejecting them and acting consistently with your belief in it? And how should that shape your life? Yeah, the, the point that you make about the role of thinking in principle uh, in order to be consistent and to avoid these dilemmas is, is a really interesting point. Uh, it reminds one of the old uh, adage attributed to Napoleon where that he's asked about how he would avoid some, uh, how he would get himself out of some impossible military situation. And he would say, I would know never to have gotten into that in the first place, which turns out not to be true for Napoleon, but Napoleon didn't have... <laughs> Uh, we don't know too much about what moral code uh, he was he was living by. So, Greg, one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you onto the show today, in particular, is because the the list of uh, topics that today's ethicists seem to be concerned about. Now, I mentioned a few things they had in common, and I'll say a little more later. But uh, they also they seem to be characteristic of the way philosophers, maybe from the last hundred years or so think about ethics, but it's worth getting more of a historical perspective here to see, is this always the way they thought about it? Was ethics always about how to resolve conflicts, how to get out of dilemmas? And your specialization is in ancient Greek philosophy. And I know you know a lot about ancient Greek, Greek ethics. So can you tell us more about the kinds of questions Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and others were grappling with? And, and, and was it the same set of kind of questions that today's ethicists are dealing with? Well, it was different, but I, I'm, and in some ways better, but I'm a little bit loath to say we should be going back to the Greeks uh, as exemplars here, which is what I think, um, I forget the name of the author of the Sigrist. article. Um, uh, yeah, Sigrist, which I think is a little bit the perspective he's coming from. So on the, the positive side, um, the Greeks viewed philosophy as a way of life and they viewed philosophies as ways of life. So if you are deciding whether to be a Platonist or an Aristotelian or an Epicurean or a Stoic, you're, you're deciding what kind of life to live. 
and uh, what's gonna, uh, what kind of principles of views are gonna shape your life. Um, and I think we ought to take philosophy seriously that way. How am I going to live? What kind of life am I going to have? Um, so that's on the, the positive side of something about Greek philosophy. On the negative side though, two things. One I think is sort of just a historical fact, but isn't really compatible with modern life and because something good about modern life. And the other is just, um, I think a, a failing in the, the ethical theories of the classical world. Um, they tended to view having a philosophical way of life as an alternative to, in effect, um, having any kind of job or career. You're either, you're somebody who's like lives as a playboy or you're somebody who lives to make money or you're somebody who lives a philosophical life or you're somebody who's involved in politics. It was in effect a lifestyle and I don't think, or a, a, a career. And I think the, the, the level of abstraction at which philosophy ought to determine a life is not that one. You can be of the same philosophy, the same principles, and be a butcher or a baker or a politician or a philosophy professor or whatever it is. So it, it, there's a kind of, um, due to the way the economy and the, the world was structured back then, it was more, um, if you're an elite who doesn't have a job, uh, are you gonna devote yourself to a philosophical way of life or, or another? Um, particularly in Plato and Aristotle's time, by the, the Stoics, that's a little less so. Um, and then the second issue, and this really pertains to the, the a lot of the contemporary philosophers who are keen to go back to Greek ethics, uh, and for the good reason that they see the Greeks as not thinking about how to solve this dilemma or that dilemma, but thinking about how to find for yourself a worthwhile or meaningful way of living. Um, that's good. And I think that is what ethics is for, but they tend to not think in terms of principles. They tend to, and you'll see this in the, the Sigrist article, you know, you have to be sensitive to these kinds of concerns and the particularities and this mode of thinking and uh, be and develop virtues, but then the content of the virtues are really vague. And if all you can say is, um, you know, be a mensch in effect, uh, or, uh, you know, which is sometimes what a lot of virtue ethics sounds like, or give a little bit of more content to be a good guy, be better, be a, uh, have a good character. Um, I don't really think that's that philosophical in the end. I mean, I think for it to, what I think we need ethics for is principles to guide us in life. And so I think um, the guiding the shape of your life, uh, you see that as more of a role in the, that is more what ethics is for in the neo-Aristotelian or neo-Eudaimonist Greek traditions, virtue ethics tradition as they call it today, but a lot less uh, about principles to guide us. And then if you look at the dilemma solvers, um, they're looking for principles. It's just that they're looking for principle, like they're looking for a rule you could apply, um, some abstract truth you could formulate, like always do the greatest good for the greatest number. But what if there were these people on a trolley, then it seems like you shouldn't. Okay, so maybe the principle is this other thing, but they're, they're looking for principles. I think we've seen coming apart, uh, there's the idea I think in both camps that abstract principles like um, don't fake reality because the unreal is unreal and can be of no value. That's the principle behind the virtue of honesty and objectivism. That principles like that aren't really germane to guiding your life. So either we have principles, but they're for these kind of esoteric dilemma situations, or we're about life guidance, but you can't really say anything too abstract and too absolute. So the, 
the contemporary thinkers tend to be looking more for principles, but it's like they're looking for them in the wrong place. Uh, and without going into too much history, could you say something briefly about why you think that shift happened of looking for them in the wrong place, of looking to the wrong subject matter to begin with? Well, I mean, there's been so many different uh, schools of thoughts and trends over time. It would be a mistake to like, it was the Greeks and then we have the guys in the philosophy departments now. But I think the, the main um, last big historical change, monumental historical change in ethical thinking is Kant. And I think what Kant does, uh, Kant is looking for principles, a principle. And um, I think there are two things that are striking in Kant that are pretty dominant in ethical thinking since him. Um, one of them is the defining of the domain of ethics by contrast to the domain of prudence, that is thinking about what's best for you. So whatever, it, it's now sort of axiomatic in, in ethicists thinking that whatever ethics is about, it's something other than um, what's best for you. Uh, such that ethics can require you to sacrifice what's best for you to whatever things are properly ethical. Uh, they don't always say sacrifice is great all the time. A lot of them think you should sacrifice less or not as much as some others, but they always think that whatever morality is, it's something that is distinct from and possibly overriding of self-interest. And that kind of axiomatic, that, that taking that as axiomatic to a moral theory, I think starts with Kant. At least he's the one who really embeds it in, in, in the American mind. And then the other thing I think that comes from Kant, maybe not exclusively, but he really entrenched it, is that what we're doing is trying to, what, we're, what our role is as ethicists is to try to um, systematize and uh, articulate some kind of common sense notion of morality that we all share. He's not the first thinker to think something like that. It's always been a strand in ethical thinking, but there's a kind of anti-radicalism in Kant's moral thinking. There's this idea that we all know what ethics is. Uh, it's this thing that we're drawn away from by our self-interest. There's this conflict between self-interest and ethics. We all, if we're really honest about it, know what the moral thing to do is. Uh, the main reason we don't is selfishness. And can we just spell out the content of this morality that we all somehow know and having spelled it out will be a kind of um, bulwark against giving into our selfishness. And that I think so, um, that unwillingness to challenge common sense and assumption that we all basically know deep down what's right and wrong already is uh, I think also um, a Kantian legacy. That's very interesting from the perspective of then looking back at the types of cases today's ethicists focus on and understanding what do they really all have in common with each other. I mentioned there are kind of many of them are kind of far-fetched or emergency situations and that's true of some of them but not all of them. Uh, what what I argue in this article that I just released today on New Ideal is that what they actually all have in common uh, I mean, it relates to the point that you just made about the moral versus the prudential, because uh, in all these cases, what you have is a perceived clash of interests. 
Now, it's not the case that there's always an actual conflict there, but the way that the philosophers think of them, at least, is, I mean, so think about the abortion case. Uh, you gave, I think, very good reasons for why uh, abortion is a, is a question that anybody should think about if they're deciding about having a child or being in a position to have a child. Um, that's not the reason I don't think that today's ethicists are focused on it. They're focused on it because they recognize there's a, there's a real potential for a, a, a conflict uh, between the mother and the child. Even the philosophers who say that their child doesn't, uh, even the philosophers who argue that the woman has a right to an abortion will often say, well, her right outweighs the right of the child's uh, or her interests outweigh the interests of the child. I don't think either of those are true to begin with because I don't think that the fetus has rights, but that's the way philosophers think about it. Or the the child in the fountain case, that's Peter Singer's favorite, famous example. Uh, it's a, the example that he uses to motivate the idea that we should all become what he calls effective altruists, where we all go on a basically a crusade to give away as much of money, our, our wealth as possible to save starving people around the world. He thinks there's a conflict between us, our interests and the interests of these people around the world. Uh, and uh, I mean, obviously, in the trolley case, if you have to choose between one party who's going to die and the other, uh, there's there's a choice that has to be made there as well. And so the, so the sense that one gets when one looks at this set of examples is that what ethics is about is making decisions that resolve these kind of interpersonal conflicts, about resolving these dilemmas that occur when one person's interest has to come at the expense of the others, which means where one person's interest has to be sacrificed to the other. Uh, and if, if what you're saying is true that there was a shift that occurred in moral philosophy, maybe it was around the time of Kant, uh, that reoriented morality at, to oppose it to prudential interests, then yeah, you would get this idea where morality is concerned with a, a particular subset of life, the, the, set, the part of life where we get into these conflicts, but then all the rest of life, that's merely prudential, where there aren't any big conflicts, but it's just we're making decisions about our own interests. That's the realm of the practical. Does that sound roughly correct to you? Maybe, but I, I don't don't see Singer quite that way. That is, I, I don't see him as about a conflict exactly. In the end, he'll say, you're happier if you're altruistic anyway. And so the way I see his argument as working is taking some... Um, issue of benevolence that you would help a, a, a baby who was drowning and trying to extrapolate from that a duty that he then thinks should govern your whole life. And I don't think he would be focused on the conflict because if you, you think about the way those cases are originally put, right? It's like there's a baby in a drowning puddle, drowning in a puddle and you can save it right now, but you'd ruin your shoes and your shoes cost $100 and uh, you'd have to be a crazy person or, or an idiot uh, not to be willing to risk your shoes uh, to, to save the baby. And it it's not posed as like, wow, you're really weighing the value of my shoes versus the value of this life. It takes it as obvious that yeah, you wouldn't feel any conflict there. You just jump in and save the kid, shoes be damned. Um, and then it's like, but when it's sending $100 to Botswana to save somebody, then you think, you know, but I could buy some shoes. And, and then you feel a conflict. So, um, but really the Botswana case is the same as the, the, the puddle case. So um, 
yeah, I think the, the, the idea of the conflict eventually does come in, but I think the way Singer is using it, it's not like a dilemma. Um, whereas in these other cases, it's a, it, it, the, it, it feels like a dilemma. Your principal says you should do this, but then you should do the other thing. So I think his, his strategy is a little bit uh, different. And he also, by the way, is much more forthright about what he wants. I mean, so for a lot of ethicists who motivate their theories by these kind of dilemma examples, um, in the end, when you say, how should I live? Well, it's complicated. You should do some of this and some of that. I don't have any principle, but you know, you should mind. Singer's got a way he says you should live. He's got a principle. Basically, you should uh, make yourself a schmoo and give everything you can to the most suffering people all the time. He, you know, he's clear in what he wants of you. Uh, and he's got a, a way to argue you into doing it. Um, you've got to give him at least uh, you know, the courage of his conviction, so to speak. Uh, although I think those convictions are very bad. Though even in that case, like if you people ask Singer, do you live up to this ideal that you've set forth? Do you give whatever very high percentage of your income to charity that you think you should be giving? And he says, well, I give a lot. And he, he gives, I, I can't remember the percent, 40, 50% of his income, but I think I should be giving more. And, uh, and even if you look at people like where he looks at Bill Gates, who sets up a whole philanthropic foundation, he thinks Bill Gates is still not living a morally perfect. Oh yeah, I mean, life. I don't think he really and so can be perfect. And there's still awful. this I mean, a... division between the moral life and the practical life, and uh, yeah, absolutely, you can't really blame us for not living a moral life, but we should still do it. And you, there are like, if you want to find a modern creature of, you know as bad as pure altruism as you can get, singers uh, as good as you're going to find. I mean, it's good an example, and therefore as bad as you're going to find. Um, uh, that is from our perspective as egoists here. And you, there's, uh, and yeah, he says he can't live up to it, but he's, you know, I mean, there's, there's a passage in one of his talks, one of the very famous talks on the internet, where he says, you know, uh, somebody wrote him and said, uh, you know, I'm giving away my kidney inspired by your book. Yeah. Uh, to do it. And I felt bad because I still have both my kidneys. But then this guy calculated um, the financial value, like how much money you'd have to spend to save as many life hours as he's saving by giving away his kidney. And it, I forget what it was, 10 grand or something. And, uh, you know, I've given away more than that. So I don't, you know, at least you know, if you want to keep your kidney in effect, you could get off the hook by writing a check for a certain amount. Uh, but then having written it, you still want to donate your kidney. So... Uh, well, it's it's actually more than that. From what I remember about the, if we're thinking about the same person, there's a there's a notable case that Singer mentions of one of his followers who decided to give away his kidney over his wife's objections because his wife said, "What if someday one of our children uh, needs this kidney?" Mm -hmm. And uh, his argument was to use invoke Singer's principle that well, children are morally speaking no more important my children are morally speaking no more important than these other children who are dying right now. And well, that's a bit of a conflict. <laughs> Let's uh, move though to something more positive. Than, yeah, um, and I wanted to turn, I wanted to turn to Ayn Rand because you mentioned, uh, bad this are, yeah, you, you wanted to mention a moment ago that, you know, that we're coming from an egoistic perspective as opposed to the altruistic perspective that generates these kinds of conflicts. And one of the core texts of Ayn Rand's that you would want to look at to think about uh, what ethics is really about as opposed to what it's not um, is her essay, The Ethics of Emergencies. 
And I want to put a quote up on the screen uh, with a passage from it that I think really cuts to the core of the issue that we've been talking about today. And I, I, I quote this passage in, in my article. Uh, and she talks about how it's altruistic thinking that generates this. She says, altruism declares that any action taken for the benefit of others is good, and any action taken for one's own benefit is evil. Thus, the beneficiary of an action is the only criterion of moral value. So that's what altruism is. But observe what this beneficiary criterion of morality does to a man's life. The first thing he learns is that morality is his enemy. He has nothing to gain from it. He can only lose. Self-inflicted loss, self-inflicted pain, and the gray, debilitating pall of an incomprehensible duty is all that he can expect. Apart from such times as he manages to perform some act of self-sacrifice, he possesses no moral significance. Morality takes no cognizance of him, and he has nothing to say and has nothing to say to him for guidance in the crucial issues of his life. It is only his own personal, private, quote, selfish life, and as such, it is regarded either as evil or, at best, amoral. Um, a few thoughts on that. I mean, I don't have anything to add to that passage as such, but let me just mention a couple of other things in Ayn Rand that are, are helpful for thinking about this. So I'll mention another essay in the same book, The Virtue of Selfishness, called The Conflicts in Scare Quotes of Men's Interests. And one of the things that that essay argues is that there aren't real conflicts among human beings' interests when they're all being rational. And that is a... Um, a point that it's worth really taking time to digest and think about whether she's right about it, I think she is. Um, if there aren't, then ethics isn't about resolving those conflicts. But the more important thing I wanna take away from that essay or, or, or kind of attune you to in that essay is she talks a lot about what it is to be rational in formulating your interests in the first place. If you formulate them rationally, then there aren't gonna be conflicts. But what is it to formulate them rationally? You don't just want something and then that's your interests. You think about, um, what you want out of life in a cause and effect manner. Uh, you take responsibility for achieving it. You don't expect it to just drop out of the sky to you. You uh, understand that it exists in a context with causes and effects. And uh, you, you, uh, you don't want an effect without wanting its causes or want a cause with, while hating the effects that inevitably follow from it. And so you, you take in, in mind in formulating your interests, they're not just out of the blue desires you have and you don't know where they came from or why, but you think about like, I'm someone who's leading a life and what do I wanna be part of that life? What does it require to achieve it over time? Um, and if you formulate your interests accordingly, they don't conflict with other people. And what ethics is about is learning to formulate them, learning the principles by which you can determine what your interests are. Well, what are those principles? You have to think of what kind of a creature am I? such that I'm able to have goals, interests in the first place. Well, I'm a living creature and I'm a living creature of a certain sort, a certain species, a human being. Human beings live in a certain way with a certain faculty of reason by which they, and that has to operate accordance with certain principles. And what ethics for objectivism gives you is the principles to create a life for yourself, which will be um, your interest, your goals, uh, which you're going to then be directing yourself towards. And it tells you things like your mind is the most important thing. Your mind is what you live by and what enables you to have and achieve values. So cherish your mind and choose all your other values in a way that accords with that. 
um, that is consistent with developing and cultivating your mind, that you need to have a purpose in life, that part of what your mind has to do is, is pick things to go for and organize your life around those things to go for. And indeed, you need to, it needs to be a productive purpose because otherwise your life won't sustain itself and you will be either dead or parasitical on others, which has a host of other destructive consequences for you. Um, that reality is what it is and pretending otherwise doesn't change it. So therefore the principle I mentioned uh, before, the principle of the virtue of honesty, that the unreal is unreal and can have no value. And so on and so forth. There are, there are principles to live by, uh, including the principle of dealing with other people by trade. And when you deal with other people by trade and you yourself are productive, there aren't these conflicts all the time. And therefore, when you see something that seems to be a conflict, there are ways to think about it, to figure out where is the conflict coming from? Is it merely apparent? Is one of us being irrational? Uh, which one and how do I determine that? Yeah. yeah, and so one place where you see this overall approach that you just mentioned coming out, I think, quite explicitly uh, in Ayn Rand's writings, you mentioned uh, a second essay from that same book, Virtue of Selfishness. But if you look at the, the lead essay in that volume, uh, The Objectivist Ethics, uh, toward the very beginning of the essay, where she gives her definition of, of what the field of ethics actually is. She says, ethics is a code of values to guide man's choices and actions. But then with special, I would emphasize this part, especially the choices and actions that determine the purpose and the course of his life. And so when you understand the subject matter of ethics from that perspective, it puts a whole different frame on thinking about things like uh, the trolley problems. The problems with these, with considering these first when you're doing ethics is it's not just that they're rare cases that might never happen. Um, it's that ethics isn't about making these kinds of choices about these hard choices uh, about who will benefit at whose expense. It's not even about, and this part I, th I find very clarifying, it's not even about making hard choices in rare cases about how to benefit yourself. It's a, it's ethics is about the choices that you have to be making on a regular basis on you know everyday ordinary circumstances, the choices which you begin to habituate, which begin to have a regular impact on your life. And because of that are going to have uh, an effect on the overall course of your life, on the kind of person that you're going to be, the, you know, and the kinds of choices which you can then, as a philosopher, um, abstract from and formulate these principles that you were just talking about, uh, which when we understand, we're going to be able to try to plan our lives in a more consistent way so as to avoid these kinds of conflicts and dilemmas and weird emergency circumstances in the first place. I think um, that's right, but I don't want to, if you overstress the habitual aspect of it, there's an important point of, yeah, you make them all the time. You always have to be thinking, what's the rational course here? Am I being dishonest or honest about this particular thing? What, um, what is a just way to evaluate the people I'm dealing with? Um, so there is a kind of habitual daily life way, but it is also true that some decisions are momentous and have outside effects outsized effect. Do sure. I marry this person? Do I have a child? Do I take this job? We're often, not often, but we're each of us occasionally prevent, presented with real dilemmas in life um, where um, they're not dilemmas like which way to, to pull the trolley, but these two of my friends um, are 
at great odds with one another and, and the situation where I have to take sides or, um, you know, whatever it is, these kind of, these things happen. And uh, ethics is particularly important in those dramatic uh, circumstances. So I, I don't want to make it seem like it's all um, too humdrum and it's all, there are dramatic choices we sometimes have to make in life. And ethics matters, especially then, and also in the less dramatic choices that are being made a moment to moment. No, I think that's a really good uh, good point. The, the point that I was making, at least, was not that ethics has nothing to say about dilemmas uh, or dramatic choices. It's just that it's not only about these kinds of choices. And you're probably not going to understand what to do in the extraordinary cases unless you've got a pretty good understanding of what you need to be doing in, in the clear cases. Um, Shall we get a question? Because some of the questions. Yes, I was just going to. I was just going to uh, say that. So we have a couple that have come in already, but let me just remind people that uh, if you'd like to submit a question on through Zoom, best way to do it is through the Q and A module. Just hover over your screen. There's a button at the bottom that says Q and A. We'll be looking there first. And again, uh, we're also monitoring super chat on YouTube. I'm monitoring at least. So uh, if you'd like to support the channel, that's a good place to put it. We've got a couple that have come in through Zoom. Uh, already. And one question that came in is, to what extent is it important to live by principle in order to be consistent, or uh, perhaps is a way to understand reality better to discover what is true and good? Would you say more on this? Well, I'll, I'll start, Greg, just by saying, isn't the part, isn't the point of what you were saying earlier, that principles are a, are the crucially important tool for figuring out what is true and good about human life because of the fact that human life is uh, of the nature that it you, we live in the long term, we need long-term guidance that's provided by principle. I mean, a principle is just a discovery of a cause and effect relationship. And if we're trying to understand what fundamental causes are necessary for human life, then, well, one of the fundamentals. The fundamental is uh, the use of our mind, the use of our rational mind uh, to discover how to live in the world, to discover how to live with other people, uh, and uh, to live with ourselves. Yeah, you don't live by principle in order to, to be consistent. It's a, a principle that you need to be consistent in order to live in reality, because reality is consistent. So there's no sort of intrinsic, you know, always act the same ways or whatever, or uh, it's, it's the fact that things are what they are and nature is what it is and it'll be the same tomorrow as it was today in fundamentals that require you to have ways of acting that recognize that. I mean, maybe part of the reason why people might think of a question in that form is because there are a lot of principles out there that, or alleged principles out there that philosophers have proposed where uh, the only reason you could come up with to, to think to, to actually stick to them is if you thought there was a principle, there was a virtue just in being consistent, no matter what you were being consistent about, because there are some pretty but awful principles that have principle, been. The unreal is unreal and can be of no value. Anytime you're lying to someone or lying to yourself or faking, uh, lying to other people, it's not always like this because occasionally it's self if you're a spy in a military campaign. Or but anytime you're lying to yourself, most times when you're lying to others, anytime when you're lying to others to try to get something from them, um, there's some issue of your um, acting as though uh, something that isn't real is real and can have value. And if you 
if you sort through, is that true? Is that really what's going on in this situation? If you use that abstract formulation and think, what is the thing that's not real that I'm faking to myself is real? And uh, what value am I trying to get this way? And will I really be able to get it? You will see if the principle is true, as I think it is, that it's a doomed uh, endeavor and you're not going to achieve any value that way. And, and part of the principle of honesty tells you, and it's, it's for that reason that you should always be honest, not to be consistent. Um, I mean, you have to be consistent, but you have to be consistent because it's consistently true that this is going to lead you to disaster. And then the principle of being consistent is in effect the principle of rationality. And uh, the principle of rationality is a principle because A really is A. The facts are what they are and contradictions can exist. And then part of the reason why we need to be why we need philosophers. Part of the reason why we need philosophical thinking about ethics is to be able to identify the proper level of generality at which the relevant ethical principles need to be formulated. Right. So, you put it as reality is real and uh, and unreality can have no value. I didn't get that quite right, but it's not never tell a lie, right? Because there can be cases where uh, speaking a falsehood to another person, as you mentioned. Uh, whether, you know, the, the, the case of the murderer who comes to the door uh, is going to be at war with your life, with your values, and there's no value in being consistent about never telling lies if you define it on that very concrete level. But if you define it on the more abstract level of don't fake reality, uh, then at that level, the, 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 what it means to recognize reality is here, I might actually need to tell a lie. Yeah, and the, that formulation, the unreal is unreal and can be of no value, is is from Atlas Shrugged. Um, and that's, I think, the, the central thing to hold in mind about honesty. And there are different ones for the different virtues. Let's look at um, the other question we have sure. up here, which I think has to do a little bit about the principles and the hard cases. So this is, uh, someone asks, what do you think about the idea that a scientific ethical theory should be developed by making sure first that outlying cases are handled before filling in the middle? I would have the opposite view uh, actually, but what, what do you think, Greg? Well, I mean, it depends on what do you mean by outlying cases? Do you mean um, dramatic and clear cut and grand scale cases? Or do you mean um, uh, cases that are complicated and convoluted in some way? Um, so I, I do think you want to work with kind of dramatic large-scale cases where the principles are particularly clear. And then you can extrapolate from those to kind of cases where there are more nuances and 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 muddle. And if that's what you mean by the middle, then fair enough. Um, but if you mean, um, you know, cases like uh, some of these far-fetched, um, or not far-fetched, but some of these um, Uh, examples where someone's in an unusual quandary. Uh, yeah, well, like let's let's there. let's take a, a concrete case. That one of the kinds of cases that Iron Man talks about in the Ethics of Emergencies is the lifeboat cases. Right. And now it, the the point is that lifeboat cases never happen. They do sometimes. People get stuck in lifeboats and they have to make terrible choices about who's going to live and who's going to die. But, also, uh, but I mean, take... but what? Just a second. What one? Th what kind of view of life are you going to be working with, or are you going to draw or generalize, uh, if those are the cases that you work with? You would right. you'd end up with the view that life is is a malevolent universe that nobody can live without somebody else dying, and the fact is that most of the rest of life isn't actually like that. 
But I think the issue is there, your choice of that example is, it's not that you end up from that example in the malevolent universe situation, your choice of that example as typical and of spelling out what the essential thing we need to deal with in life reflects that yeah. you're on that malevolent case. And whatever your view of the kind of, what are the fundamental facts of life that, um, that uh, we need to um, acknowledge and, um, and, and think about to orient ourselves in our actions, whatever your view of that is, is gonna make different cases seem like the relevant ones to start with or different kinds of examples. And, um, but I mean, if you look, think of, I mean, you know, Ayn Rand's ethics is presented via, you know, things that if you put them in brief uh, synopsis form, rather than over a course of a whole novel, you know, should you blow up a housing project if it's stolen your idea? To, like you could make it seem like a ridiculous example. And it is a far-fetched and constructed and contrived, but it's uh, contrived to uh, show the truth in a dramatic circumstance of a moral principle that you can has been built up to that you can see it's true in a whole lot of other cases. And then even in this case as a kind of coup de gras, um, uh, you see it. So it's not that they're dramatic or edge cases uh, or unusual cases. It's what are these cases highlighting? Is Are the, the facts that they're highlighting true and how are they being motivated? And are they being motivated by a gee whiz, this is confusing factor? Or are they being motivated with respect to the values and decisions a person has to make? Yeah, and the point that you make about how these uh, lifeboat type cases are more reflections of a person's view is, is really important. And that's certainly what Ayn Rand says in The Ethics of Emergencies. She says every view of ethics is, is based on a view of metaphysics. And if you wanna see a really good example of this, Look at the Pope's recent encyclical, which uh, we did a podcast on a few weeks ago, and um, I actually quote from it in another article that's coming out soon, where I talk about the Ethics of Emergencies article, because it's such a stark contrast with Ayn Rand's view. He literally says in regards to the current pandemic, that uh, the pandemic is like a storm, and it reveals and exposes the fact that all along our life has been living in a boat together and we all need to get along. And I mean, there's, there's a case where it's definitely his previous metaphysical view that's, that's influencing the way and what he sees as significant. So what he sees as significant in this case is not that uh, scientists have just finished a 30 year research effort to come up with a new mRNA vaccine scheme that's going to completely revolutionize how we build vaccines, uh, but uh, look at all the terrible decisions that people have had to make. Now, obviously, it is a really bad situation that we're in. But what do you, what's what view of the universe uh, do you look at this situation through when you're deciding what kinds of ethical decisions to make? Yeah, is the I question that is how people have dealt with the pandemic. You and I had another podcast on this um, some time ago. I think is really telling here because there are mistakes you can make on all sides, but there's a kind of person, there's a kind of worldview that you could have in which the pandemic is 
confirming of what you've always, you know, yeah. life is an emergency and we're always at death's door and there's nothing to be done about it. And we're all casting this together and thrown off our guard and so forth. And my view of the universe is such that that's always going to happen. And here, see, it finally did. And so we ought to sacrifice and be our brother's keeper and so forth. No. Um, and the, the, this is my worldview has always been there's some calamity around every corner and now here there's a calamity and we're settled into it and there's a tendency from that worldview to play up the pandemic and to um uh uh kind of revel in it and then there's a, a, a and use it to pitch the ideas you've always had all along and there's also a tendency for people who have an action bias a can-do bias life is not a scene of constant tragedies that we need to always be worried about, but someplace where you can accomplish things. There's a tendency to, especially when you see, see people reveling in the pandemic in that way, to want to push back against that and say, no, this is no big deal. Uh, and you can see that in someone like Elon Musk, who maybe uh, I think sometimes takes proper and heroic action against, uh, against this kind of worldview, but also sometimes I think trivializes it in ways that he shouldn't. Uh, but it, part of it is coming from a, you know, a real distaste for the view of life, the sense of life that's coming across by the people who are relieved that here's a pandemic to confirm their catastrophic worldview. Uh, but if you don't have that worldview, like what is the right way to understand uh, how life isn't a constant a parade of tragedies? Uh, how do you orient yourself to in a time of a particular tragedy uh, that this is transient, that this isn't uh, what the world is like and how to see the fact of human efficacy and the need for freedom uh, in a context where um, that's not the most obvious facts, particularly the way these things are presented in the culture. Um, and that's one of the things we really need philosophy and philosophical principles for. So we have a question that's coming through Super Chat uh, from someone who's asked me about this before. I think it's, uh, so th first of all, thank you for the super super chat donation. Um, I think this may be an interesting question to end on. Have you seen the television show, The Good Place? Uh, would you be willing to watch it for research purposes? And I, I've seen uh, uh, at least the first season of this show. Did for background, um, anyone who's wondering, this is a major sitcom on, it played on NBC for three seasons, I think before, uh, where the subject of the sitcom was moral philosophy, yeah. uh, which is an unprecedented thing, in my view, at least. And uh, I, mean, I thought it was a very interesting show. I have some thoughts on it. But Greg, do you want to share some? Uh, I know I've, you've seen some of it, right? I've seen all of them. Uh, oh, I need I, to watch the rest. I really like it. Then there's a trolley problem episode <laughs> yes. where they, uh, yeah, uh, very uh, clever. Um, no, I think it's a good sitcom, um, and it's um, what to say about its take on moral philosophy. I think that's a little um, more complicated because we have to talk about the different issues that come up. The, it does feature some of the better criticisms from within contemporary moral philosophy of certain of the worst strands within it. So uh, one of the main characters, the philosophy professor, uh, Chidi, um, is a, a guy who's kind of indecisive and too much in his head and so forth, and uh, eventually learns to kind of overcome that problem. So that's uh, one, you know, uh, 
one issue. There are um, particular episodes that are um, critical, uh, present criticisms, again, that are familiar within the philosophy literature of uh, utilitarianism and uh, the um, idea that somebody could become a so-called utility pump, that is someone who's just uh, has no personal desires of his own because he's just trying to uh, be what Ayn Rand called following the Labner a shmoo that altruism encourages us to be. So some of the, the better and more kind of personal and finding meaning in life related strands in some of the better stuff in contemporary philosophy do get expression in that show. But I don't think the show, uh, it's still too much focusing on selflessness or being at least being unselfish as a kind of axiomatic idea of part of what of what morality is and the the main character Eleanor is uh in her uh worldly life portrayed as a kind of embodiment of selfishness and therefore of small-mindedness and part of her growth curve is to become unselfish um and uh there are, I mean there's just a lot to say but it, it's a show that doesn't have an I think overarching philosophical theme but deals with particular issues in particular uh episodes and we could you know talk about the particular i think the person who uh, posted this question wants us to have extensive discussions about it at some point maybe that's something we should talk about i want to say one thing about the show which is to bring two points that you just made together one the way in which it brings in criticisms of uh various contemporary moral theories and examples uh, but also the character of chidi because uh since chidi is as you said, always in his head and indecisive, that comes together with the first point in the episode about the trolley problem. Because in the episode of the trolley problem, they bring an actual trolley uh, and they put him in the seat uh, to make the decision. And as the trolley is rolling closer and closer to the people, you see him debating like, well, maybe I should do this. But then on the other hand, there's this other factor. And before he's able to make a decision, the trolley has already run the people over. And, and in fact, one of the, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why this is a, a weird case to think about when you're considering uh, where you're going to get your ethics from is precisely that it is a case where anybody would probably have to make a split second decision and wouldn't, and it wouldn't be easy to take any kind of principle that they are working with to apply to that kind of case. And so ethics deals with principles that are thought out well in advance for the sake of applying over the course of your life. Uh, they're not very good at making split second decisions about very concrete cases uh, where there's no time to think and where there's no time and there aren't a long there isn't a long-term implication unless you get out of it but if you wanna i think that there's more so i liked the show i thought it was very funny very cleverly written and there were some good uh particular things in particular episodes that were good ways of introducing particular things that are discussed in contemporary philosophy literature but if i think um kristen bell's earlier show has a lot more value philosophically uh veronica mars veronica mars uh, is just a cops and you know a, a detective show with a real hero, and I think you know you can learn more about actual ethics from the principles she's acting on in that show, than from uh, than from the kind of interesting thought experiment stuff that you sometimes get in the Good Place. Although the Good Place is good, but you know Veronica Mars is higher on my recommendation list, both as uh, as entertainment and as uh, the value you can take from living better from it. And I'm the one who recommended it to you. That's true. 
Okay, I think uh, we should we should call it quits at this point. This trolley has reached the end of the line. Um, so yeah, thanks. It did occur to me, Ben, though, you could say uh, as the contrast to morality as a code of values uh, to make the choices that guide the course of your life. It's not the code of values to make the choices that guide the course of a trolley. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Greg. Uh, I should I should wrap up with a few announcements and reminders for our audience. Um, if you found valuable some of the things that we talked about today, uh, one place that you might want to look is Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness, in particular, her essay, The Ethics of Emergencies, which deals with, which is much more about what ethics really is for than what it's not for. Uh, I'll be having an article coming out about that shortly. That's in The Virtue of Selfishness. Greg mentioned a few other articles from there as well. Uh, you would also be remiss if you didn't pick up Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Chapter eight of that book is about Ayn Rand's conception of virtue and goes uh, through a great amount of detail at a very high level, uh, what these uh, different virtues mean, what these principles that Greg was talking about would look like in application to life and where they come from, what kind of uh, proof can be given for them. Also, uh, since Greg was with us, I thought I should mention uh, the book that he edited with the late Alan Godhelf, The Companion to Ayn Rand. There are a number of chapters on objectivist ethics in there. See especially chapters three, four, six, and seven uh, that touch on various aspects of things that came up today. And last but not least, I'll mention the article that I mentioned a few times today was just released on New Ideal, Why Today's Morality Offers No Real Guidance. Uh, if you want a quick link to that, you can go to bit.ly slash no hyphen real hyphen guidance. Otherwise, just go to newideal.einrand.org to find that and many other articles by our authors. Uh, I also want to take a brief moment to let our audience know about a special event that the Ayn Rand Institute is sponsoring uh, at the end of the week. Uh, we've been talking today about the influence of various contemporary moral philosophical ideas, even some of the philosophers who advance them. It's rare that objectivist philosophers get to have live public exchanges with noteworthy moral philosophers of our day who are not objectivists, but that is happening at the end of the week uh, in an event that will be uh, basically a discussion slash debate between Ankar Gatte, who is ARI's senior fellow, and the Harvard philosopher Michael Sandel. Sandel recently released a book called The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, we are going to be having an event called Individual Merit, The Path to Justice or Tyranny concerning the subject of Professor Sandel's book. Ankar Gatte will present uh, an objectivist analysis of the major claims of that book. Professor Sandel will be given the opportunity to respond. Now, this is an event that is uh, available exclusively to current participants in the Ayn Rand Institute's Objectivist Academic Center program, both graded students and auditors. It is not too late to register to be an auditor if you really want to attend this live event. Um, to do that, you can go to einrand.org OAC, find out more about what the auditing program involves uh, and see if it's the kind of thing that might interest you beyond just this particular event. That's if you want to attend the live event, which is this Friday uh, at November 20th, 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, another option is uh, for those of you who are or who would like to become 
ARI members uh, through uh, regular donations. Uh, we will be having a roundtable event this coming Saturday as part of our usual roundtable series where we will play highlights from the recordings of this event. Uh, Ankar Gatte and I will do a little debrief on the session as, as I'll be uh, moderating the discussion between the two of them the, the day before. And again, if you're interested in finding out more about how to become a member, just go to einrand.org slash donate. As usual, if you have any thoughts or questions that came up about this episode today, please send us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We read all the email that comes in. We, we respond frequently. We sometimes even uh, consider your ideas. Uh, well, we always consider your ideas, but sometimes we also do the ideas that our viewers suggest for future topics. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, we, we very much enjoy getting whatever feedback we can get from you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for attending. And we will be uh, back next week for another episode of New Ideal Live. Have a good day. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.